Hey, good morning, everybody. So the the candle is lit, and yeah. (laughs) So we're celebrating with Beckett uh, Lehman, a young man in our church who was baptized after services last week. So way to go, Beckett. We're uh, proud of you and your decision. So uh, if you would, just for a moment, think about this question. When you, if you would think about your circle of relationships, so, so think about kind of your extended family relationships. Think about the people that you work with on a regular basis. Uh, think about maybe your neighbors on either side or across the street. Um, think about uh, maybe people you know from community organizations that you're involved with. There's probably, if you think, you know, 40, 50 or so people that are in your circle of acquaintance from uh, all of those areas. And now, uh, who of, of that group of 40, 50, 60 people, who would you say is the most unlikely candidate for you to have a faith conversation with. Like the person you that would say they would never be open to Jesus. Like I just, I just, don't, I, I just don't see that happening. Maybe they're even, they're, they're very different from you, you know, or, and you just feel like you don't have any connection points with them because of that. But for whatever reason, you feel like they wouldn't be open to Christ. Who is it? Just, just get them in your mind for just a minute. The most unlikely person in your circle. And what if that was the very person that God was going to ask you to go to and have a spiritual conversation with? Well, this is pretty close to what happens to the apostle Peter uh, in an account that's given to us in Acts chapter 10. What I want to do is I want to just tell you the story of what happened to Peter and then show you how this has some relevance in our life also, okay? So here's here's the story as it went down in Acts chapter 10. The story begins by introducing us to this guy named Cornelius. Now Cornelius is a Roman army officer. He is stationed in Caesarea on the coast of Israel. He is a centurion, which means he is in charge of 100 combat soldiers. Cornelius, is not, he doesn't know about Jesus. He doesn't know the way of Jesus. But he is introduced in the story as a man who is a good man. He is a God-fearer. He has a heart to want to know God. And Cornelius, in his prayer time, has an angelic vision. An angel appears to him and tells him that he needs to send some of his men south to the city of Jaffa, which is modern-day Tel Aviv. It's about 35 miles south of Caesarea. He says, I want you to look for a man named Peter. This was the apostle Peter. The angel says he is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner, and I want you to I want the men to get him and bring him back to Caesarea to speak to you because he is a message for you and for your whole household. This is what the angel tells him. So Cornelius uh, obeys the vision and the guys head off. Uh, While they're on the road, the apostle Peter is up on the roof of Simon the Tanner. It was a flat roof. People would often pray or relax up on the flat roof. Peter is up there praying and he has a heavenly vision 
at the same time, okay? And, and Peter's vision is a sheet is let down from heaven and it is full of all kinds of animals, both clean and unclean. Because remember with Jewish dietary laws, some animals were clean and you could eat, some were not. This was filled with both types of animals. And a voice from heaven tells Peter, Peter, get up, kill and eat. And Peter says, no way, I've never eaten in, uh, something unclean against the Jewish law, I won't do it, I can't do it. And the voice from heaven says, don't call unclean what I have declared to be clean. And this happens two other times. So Peter gets this vision three times in a row, okay? So it's really important. And, uh, and, and what we'll see is that this, this clean, unclean thing is not just about food, but it's really about people. That, that Peter was calling uh, people he considered to be unclean when God wanted them, uh, him to see them as clean. So just as this third vision comes to Peter, right at that moment, Cornelius' servants are knocking on the door. <laughs> and they're saying, hey, we're looking for a guy named Peter. Is he staying here? And they say, yes. And at that moment, Peter has this prompting of the Holy Spirit saying, go with these men. Don't be afraid. I know it's against your custom. I want you to go with these men because you have a message to deliver to, to Cornelius. So Peter uh, makes the decision to go with them. It's a two-day journey, 35 miles south to Jaffa. They arrive uh, in, in the middle of the day, and Cornelius uh, has gathered all of his household there. And Cornelius says, here we are. He tells Peter the, the angelic vision that he received. He says, you obviously have something to tell us. We are all here to hear it. So let us know what it is. And so Peter, then he just, uh, he tells them all about Jesus as the promised Messiah. He says, Jesus is Lord of all. He tells, he tells Cornelius and his household about Jesus's ministry over the three years, about his death and about his resurrection by the power of God. He says, God's appointed him judge of all the earth, but to all who believe, Cornelius, there is forgiveness of sin. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit comes on Cornelius and his whole household in a demonstrative way so that Peter can see that this Gentile household is being filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and then the, his whole household is baptized. So this is an amazing story, and it's amazing for a couple, a couple reasons at least. One, from a big picture perspective, it's an important event because the gospel was being shown that it's open to all nations that no nation is excluded from the hope of the gospel. But on a more micro personal level, what was happening here too, is that God was expanding Peter's heart for all kinds of people. And he wants to expand our heart for all kinds of people as well. So how did God expand 
Peter's heart and how can he expand our heart? I want to point out just a few things from the story that I think are important for us to understand. Here's the first thing. This was a realization Peter had to come to. It's the same realization we all have to come to. Number one is to realize that God shows no favoritism when it comes to external things. He cares about the heart. God shows no favoritism with external things. It says in Acts 10.34, Peter is saying that this is an aha moment for him. He has had to come to this realization. He didn't have it before, but now he has it. It says in Acts 10.34, Peter replied, he's talking to Cornelius. He says, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism, that in every nation he accepts those who fear him and who do what is right. That God doesn't look at the the outside things like nationality, ethnicity, how people look. He is looking for a heart that is seeking after him. And Cornelius had a heart that was seeking after God. But Peter would never have considered sharing the good news with him. Why? Why was Cornelius an unlikely person for Peter from his perspective? Here's the first. Because Cornelius was a Gentile, meaning he was a non-Jewish person. And Peter thought the good news of Jesus was only for the people of Israel, was only for Abraham's descendants. He wasn't remembering that the promise given to Abraham was to to begin in Israel and then it was to flow out to all the nations. And so God was needing to remind him about that. On top of that, it was a social taboo at that time for a Jewish person to enter into the home and to have table fellowship with a non-Jewish person. It wasn't in the Old Testament law, you won't find that anywhere in the Old Testament, but it was a social taboo at that time. And God was asking him to do that very thing, to go into Cornelius' home and share the good news with him. And not only was Cornelius a Gentile, but he was a Roman army officer. So think about it, Rome was oppressing Israel. And it was, it was the government, it was the Roman government that executed Jesus. I mean, Peter's got to be thinking, of all people, you want me to go to him. I mean, he represents the iron heel of Rome. Rome is the one that killed Jesus. And you want me to go to his house and to share the gospel. Now, a centurion Uh, I think as we mentioned earlier, a centurion commanded 100 combat soldiers, okay? And they were often, they were typically promoted from within the ranks. They were, uh, we might say, even grizzled combat veterans who had the respect of the men that they commanded. And uh, they were the backbone of the Roman army. And interestingly enough, when centurions are mentioned in the New Testament, they are shown in a positive light. You might remember also the story of the centurion who was stationed at Capernaum. And the centurion comes to Jesus and wants healing for his servant. Do you remember that story? And Jesus says of that centurion, I have never seen such faith in all of Israel that I see in this man right here. 
It is a centurion at the cross of Jesus, the one in charge of Jesus' crucifixion, who sees all the events of that day and says, surely he was the son of God. It was a centurion in the book of Acts who saves the apostle Paul's life on a couple of occasions. And so it's almost like there's an intentional uh, uh, wanting us to understand that even among Israel's enemies, there were those who were truly seeking God. But Peter needed his heart expanded in this regard. We don't deal today with this Jewish Gentile question, right? It's been settled. We fully understand that the gospel is for all nations and for all people. But are there people that we would consider unlikely for us to witness to on a personal level because they are different than me? A different background, a different culture, a different walk of life, a different station of life. You know, maybe if I am a student, it's, it's, it's someone, it's a kid maybe who's not part of the popular crowd, not in the mainstream, but God is saying, I want you to reach out. I want you to make a connection with that person because I am working in their life and in their heart. How often, even subconsciously, do I make a judgment without even knowing someone else's heart? I remember the first time I was invited to go do prison ministry. And I, and I had to overcome that a little bit in my own spirit because you have certain presuppositions or stereotypes that you carry about somebody who is in prison. Or you might even think, you know, even if they do accept the Lord, it's a jailhouse conversion. You know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna uh, last. But when I got over that hump and began to minister to people in prison, what you realize is that people are just people. They, they, people are people everywhere. And, and uh, so maybe there are some of those subconscious things that we have to overcome. Here's the thing, if someone is seeking the Lord, if someone is seeking God, he is gonna send someone to them. And am I willing to be sent? I have to come to the same conclusion that Peter came to that day, that God shows no favoritism when it comes to external things. He looks at the heart. So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. If God's gonna expand my heart to realize that, that God shows no favoritism, and number two, that I would begin to pray for these unlikely people in my life, to begin to pray for them. An important part of the story that I think is applicable to us is that God spoke to both men in their time of prayer. If you look at Acts chapter 10, verse 9, it says, The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was in his prayer time that he was in a position to hear that prompting from God. The same thing happened to Cornelius. Cornel it says in Acts 10, verse 30, Cornelius replied, four days ago, I was praying in my house about this same time, three o'clock in the afternoon, when suddenly a man in dazzling clothes 
was standing in front of me. And he told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. God spoke to both men in their time of prayer. So what about that unlikely person that you thought about when we started the message today? That, that, that one person that you thought was most unlikely. I don't know their heart, but what if we began to pray for them during this 21 days of prayer? Doesn't have to be a complicated prayer, right? But every day for the remainder of this 21 days of prayer, if we just said something like, God, I'm, just, I'm, 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 I'm praying for Mike. In my mind, he may seem unlikely to be open to you, but what I know is that you show no favoritism. And so I pray that you would open my heart to him, and I pray that his heart would be open to you. And I'm going to listen for any promptings that you give me. In Jesus' name, amen. What would happen if hundreds of us began to pray for the unlikelies in our life, and we were open to seeing what God wants to do in them. And here's the thing, if he does prompt me in some way, I can be assured that he is already at work in their heart too, warming their heart and making them ready, because that's what happened in this Peter and Cornelius story, right? He was, in, he was prompting Peter, he was prompting Cornelius, and God was bringing them together. And if God prompts you in your prayer time, you can be assured that he is already at work preparing the heart of that other person. So I realize that God shows no favoritism. I commit to pray for these unlikely people in my life, and then number three is I commit to obey even if it's outside my comfort zone. You got to understand when Peter went to Cornelius's house, you got to see how far outside of Peter's comfort zone that was. And that's what, Peter, that's what Peter tells Cornelius. And Cornelius already knows this. He already knows Jewish custom. Okay, and he knows this has been a big reach for Peter to come to him. And that's what Peter says in Acts 10, verse 28. He says, you know, it's against our laws. Now, not Old Testament law, this is just social custom. You know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you've sent for me. Peter had to step way outside of his comfort zone, and so will I. And while we may not have a, like, a vision as clear as Peter's was, I mean, this was a big event in salvation history where the door was flung open to all nations, but God still speaks to our heart when he is at work in somebody's life. The question is, am I committed to act when I hear his voice, even if it feels uncomfortable? And here's the thing, if it does feel uncomfortable, I can be even more confident that it's the Holy Spirit because I would never come up with that on my own, right? 
That, there's no way that could be my flesh. And so if it feels uncomfortable, that's that more likely than not, that is God prompting you to do it. And the action can take different forms. You know, maybe one day this person that you have been praying for, this unlikely in your life that you have been praying for, maybe one day they happen to share something difficult that's going on in their life, something troubling that's happening in their life. And after listening, you say, hey, would you mind if I prayed for you? And when you get that prompting to pray for them, uh, it'll probably feel a little uncomfortable <laughs> to do that, right? Like, right here? You want me to pray for this person like right here? And you feel that prompting to do it. But when you do, when you offer prayer to them and they accept it and you just say a simple, genuine, sincere, heartfelt, spirit-led prayer, God gives you the words to pray for them. And it is amazing how that ministers to people, especially the unlikelies in your life that maybe have never had somebody care for them in that way and pray for them sincerely in that way. That can be a life-changing moment for them. Maybe the action that we are prompted towards is just to get to know somebody, just to be interested in their life, uh, to ask questions, to be curious about their background and their story, and just have a desire to get to know them. And so the thing you're being prompted to do is just to be interested in them and just to ask. Or it could be over time, that the prompting is to share your faith story when the time is right. It could even be a prompting to be involved in an outreach ministry that feels a little bit outside of what you would normally do or feel comfortable doing. You know, whether it was prison ministry or homeless ministry or, or some other outreach ministry of the church, but you feel a prompting to be involved in that, it feels a little uncomfortable, but that's probably God prompting you to do it. As we close, I wanna play a video, and it's a testimony of a guy by the name of Nabil Qureshi. Nabil is a Pakistani-American. He grew up in a devout Muslim home, but a guy named David he became friends with in college. And this friendship developed into a redemptive friendship where Nabil was able to respond to the good news of Jesus. And it reminds us that God is always at work around us, always at work in the world uh, in people that we might consider unlikely. So this is a little bit longer. It's about uh, 12 minutes, but I think it'll be a blessing to you to hear Nabil's testimony. So you watch, and then I'll come back and close us out in prayer. Here's Nabil. Yeah, well, my parents are from Pakistan. I was born and raised in the States. And being that they're from Pakistan, it was their desire to raise a devout Muslim child here in the States. So growing up, I learned how to pray the five daily prayers, prayed them regularly. By the age of five, I had memorized the last seven chapters of the Quran and recited those regularly in my five daily prayers. And I actually finished the entire Quran recitation in Arabic by the age of five. So it was a very devout Muslim life, but 
My parents also came with some presuppositions about the West. Uh, they see the immorality, they see the, the, the way people uh, commit adultery, and they see things on TV and, and the immodest dress, and they impute all of that to Christianity because they see the West as a Christian area. Uh, so not only was it me practicing Islam, but they had also kind of taught me to defend myself against Christianity. Mm. And that's a common thing for Muslims around the world to come to the West with. And so growing up then, I was a devout Muslim, yes, but I was also trained with arguments to challenge and respond to the gospel. How did that affect your childhood then growing up compared to like other American kids? And you, you've kind of spoken that a little bit, but just flush that out a little bit more. Well, you know, what I really noticed was for us, Islam was our identity. Like we knew Islam, we were Muslim, and that's what we were representing wherever, I, wherever we went. Uh, my parents really had no choice. My mother, she would wear the burqa, so obviously whenever someone saw her, immediately they're thinking Islam. Uh, and I realized that the other kids didn't really own their faith. Yeah, they might call themselves Christian, yeah, they might go to church, but that didn't affect the way they lived. It didn't affect the way they thought. And so that was something that made us even more proud. As Muslims, we thought, we are following the true God. He affects and permeates every aspect of our lives. Whereas in the West, uh, people realize their faith is false, and that's why it doesn't really affect the way they live. That's kind of how we subconsciously thought. Mm -hmm. So then for um, your whole childhood, this is the, how you were brought up. This is your thinking. These were your convictions. Again, this was your identity, which really stuck with me as well. But there was one particular friendship that you developed, and maybe you can tell us what age that was and how that over time started to introduce you to Christianity. Absolutely. It was uh, something I did regularly was I would challenge people on the gospel. Uh, friends would say to me, Nabil, do you know Jesus? And of course, Muslims have a very developed view of Jesus. They believe he's the Messiah. They believe that he's a miracle working man. He's sinless. Uh, Muslims believe Jesus is going to come back at the end of times. And so I would have a script ready to give and I would challenge people on their view of Jesus. And by the way, how did, how did Christians generally do when you did challenge them on their faith? Miserably. <laughs> uh, what I realized I very early on was that even the slightest challenge on the Bible on the reliability or the compilation of the Bible or on Jesus' deity or on the Trinity especially. Mm -hmm. uh, no one really knew more than uh, just enough to say what they were told to mm -hmm. say. They didn't really know why they believed what they believed, didn't know how to defend it. And so as part of me honoring Islam, I would challenge Christians because you see Muslims see uh, the Trinity as polytheism and that's offensive to Muslims. And so in so challenging one specific Christian for the first time, and this is when I was a freshman in college, for the first time someone was able to actually respond to my challenge. Mm. And I realized this guy not only knows some information about his faith, but he actually cares about his faith. And so we developed this friendship that resulted from me challenging him on the Bible. And uh, that's how I began to get introduced to the power and truth of the gospel. Uh, his name was David, mm -hmm. is that right? And I love about in your book how you talk about David was uh, loving to you, patient with you, became a friend to you, which meant so much to you. It wasn't just this all just about this one conversation. There was more of the heart of Christ behind that. Maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I really do think that, uh, well, I believe what Jesus says. Jesus says that unless you're willing to pick up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of me. So the gospel is not just, hey, do you want to be saved? Hey, do you want to live a better life? It's, are you ready to die for the sake of this message? And uh, that's something that requires someone to lay down their life. Now, if I'm telling someone, hey, lay down your life, but they don't know they can trust me, why would they ever listen to me? Mm. 
You need to have a relationship with someone when you're sharing the gospel with them, if they're going to hear it. Mm. Now, of course, I'm not saying that street preaching doesn't work. I've preached on the side of the street, too, and that does work at times. But by far and away, the most powerful way to share the gospel is through relationships. Right. So through this uh, friendship and relationship with this man, David, um, you were driven to a point of really uh, just a decision between Islam and Christianity. Tell us about how that happened and what happened. For a Muslim raised in the West, devout Muslims, a lot of it has to do with apologetics and with truth. What is the truth? Islam very clearly denies some things about Jesus. Yes, Jesus is miracle-working, he's the Messiah, but it denies that he ever died on the cross. It denies that he ever claimed to be God. And if he never died on the cross, how did he rise from the dead? So Islam denies the death, deity, and resurrection of Jesus. Well, according to Paul, what do you need to believe in order to be saved? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, so the deity, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The very three things Islam denies, you have to believe in order to be saved. And so for me, it was a matter of trying to prove that those things didn't happen in order to establish the case for Islam. Well, as I was trying to disprove those things, I realized the evidence for Jesus' death, deity, and resurrection was very strong. So that must have been, um, that must have been difficult for you again in your devout faith at the time and all of a sudden some restlessness began? I didn't take, it wasn't overnight. It, it yeah. took years for me to see this evidence and for it to compile and for the tectonic shifts to happen in my mind. And uh, when I realized the evidence was strong, then I turned my eyes to Islam and I said, how strong is the evidence for Islam? And uh, to my shock, it was far weaker. When I leveled the same criticisms I had leveled on Christianity on Islam, the foundation fell apart. And so that's when it became a matter between me and God of actually asking him to show me the truth. So how did you actually come to Christ? Dreams were a fundamental part of what God used. And that's even, as Muslims grew up, they take dreams very seriously. Tell our viewers about that. It's fascinating, exciting. Well, for Muslims, most Muslims don't believe they can commune with God. Um, some modern Muslims do and some Sufi Muslims do, but generally in, in history and the way Islam has traditionally been thought, taught, is, uh, God is kind of removed from you. And the only way you can really get guidance directly from Him is through dreams. And Muslims uh, have a prayer, it's called Salat Istikhara, where they specifically ask God to give them dreams for guidance. And so I ask God for visions and for dreams, and I'm not alone in that. Approximately 50 to 70 percent of former Muslims who are now Christians came partially through visions and dreams. Wow, that's awesome. And you had one very specific dream. Tell us that. This dream was the the one that convinced me. I had one that was very symbolic, and then I had a follow-up dream, and I also had a vision, but this dream was powerful. Mm. In this dream, I was standing at the threshold of a narrow door. This door was just wide enough to fit me and just tall enough to fit me. I mean, in my dream, it was like, wow, this door is narrow. And at the other side of this doorway was a room that was set with a feast. And people were sitting down in nice clothes at these round tables, and it was like a wedding feast. And I knew in my dream that that room was heaven. I wanted to get into that room, but I couldn't because at the other end of the doorway was my friend David. Now, he wasn't blocking me per se. He was looking forward. In fact, all the people in the room were looking forward, waiting for the owner or the speaker to come and start the event. But I couldn't get in because he was blocking the way. And so I looked at him and I said, David, I thought we were going to eat together. And he says, you haven't responded. And in the dream right there, I knew I needed to respond to the invitation David was giving me in order to come into heaven. But this is where it got crazy. 
When I woke up, I told my friend David the dream. And uh, he said, Nabil, this dream is so clear. Just go to Luke chapter 13. And uh, I went to Luke 13 for the first time. I had never been to Luke 13 before. Mm -hmm. And when I opened it up, there was a section there that was titled, The Narrow Door. And when I saw it, my heart just stopped. I bet it did, yeah. And I'm going to paraphrase it. Basically what it says is Jesus was going through the towns and villages preaching the good news. And the disciples said, Lord, are many going to be saved? And he said, make every effort to enter through that narrow door because mm -hmm. many will try and few will be able. And you will see people sitting inside at the feast of the kingdom of heaven. Make every effort to enter before the owner comes and closes that door. And so I knew that God had given me a dream straight out of the Bible and he placed me inside a parable, showed me exactly where I was and he left my decision up to me. Wow. It was very clear for me at that point what I needed to do. So then what did happen from that point? Because again, your story is amazing in the sense that it wasn't just necessarily that day, but it, was, it, it took a while for you to actually give your life to you Christ. You know, Robbie, in order for a Muslim to become a Christian, they have to be willing to give up a lot depending on how devout their family is, uh, their identity is usually wound up in Islam. So it wasn't just me saying, I'm going to change my beliefs. That's right. It's me saying, I'm going to leave my family and everything they've stood for all the way back to Muhammad's time. I mean, my last name's Qureshi. The, if Muhammad had a last name, it would have been Qureshi. He was part of the Quraysh tribe. And so I had to give up everything. My mother was the daughter of a Muslim missionary, so I had to give up all that. I'm the eldest son in my family. I, I'm the one who's supposed to bring honor to the family. If I become Christian, that's the worst thing I could possibly do. Mm -hmm. And so I have to think, not only am I giving up my family, I am consigning my family's reputation to the flames, basically. Um, and so it was something that uh, I needed a lot of time to wrestle through and to, to pray through. And I asked God to comfort me through it. And it was when I read his word that I received the promises of God, Mark 10, 29. Yes. Uh, and also the encouragement from God to go ahead and make And you went through a whole time of mourning in this too. And I remember you came to Matthew chapter five in the Beatitudes and blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. It's beautiful. And so that was one of the turning points as well, I wasn't can't it? tell you how beautiful that message was. Uh, you know, in, in the Quran, there's nothing that says you are, I'm, I'm giving you comfort if you're mm -hmm. hurting. Uh, the Quran says, do this, do that, do this, do that. But uh, there in the Bible, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Wow. It was like my heart was just electrified into life when I read that. And my life has never been the same. Wow. I love that. And even now today, you are now serving with Revy Zechariah's uh, International Ministries. And now you're an apologist uh, speaking about the gospel and defending the Christian faith to those who oppose it. Tell us a little bit about that, maybe if you want to. Well, for me, it's a matter of sharing the truth and beauty and transformative power of the gospel. I mean, this message changes everything. If God came into this world to take our sins, that means he loves us. It loves us even though we sin against him. And then he takes a look at us. While he's on the cross bleeding and dying for us, the words we should remember are, as I have loved you, so love one another. That's the call we're given as Christians. He's given us everything we need in this life and this afterlife. So all we have to do is follow him and pour ourselves out for the sake of those around us. And that transformative life is the message of the gospel. There's nothing like it. Isn't that a beautiful testimony? Yeah. It really is. God is at work in people's hearts. He is at work in the world around us if we have, if we have eyes to see it. And when the Lord is at work in someone's heart, he's going to send somebody to them. And in Nabil's case, God sent David to him and David was obedient 
to that prompting and a long-term friendship that was redemptive for Nabil. And God wants to send me and God wants to send you to the, uh, the people around you also. And so as we close in prayer today, let's just commit together. Uh, let's pray together for those unlikelies that God put in our mind and in our heart. And let's commit to be open and going when the Holy Spirit prompts us to do so. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you so much. I'm so thankful for this wonderful church that me and my family has a privilege to be a part of. We thank you for this incredible story of Peter and Cornelius that you put in scripture for us. And we're thankful for the lesson contained within it that uh, that God has no favoritism based on externals, that anyone, no matter who they are, no matter where they've been, no matter where they have come from, no matter what their experiences are, if their heart is open to the things of God, then, God, then you will send someone to them. And so, Lord, together, just as a whole congregation, we think of that unlikely person that you put on our mind today. And we begin to pray for them. Lord, we ask that their heart would be open, that it would be warmed to the things of God, that you would open our heart towards them, that the scales would come off our eyes, that we could see the great harvest around us, that we could see the hungry people that are all around us, that we could see those hearts that are seeking after you. Give us eyes to see and give us an expanded heart, an enlarged heart for people. And we pray specifically together for those names you put on our heart, that hundreds of people right now are being prayed for by us, that maybe apart from hearing this story again, we wouldn't be prompted to pray for. But today, right now we are, and we trust that you're at work in their life and we desire to pray for them every day for the remainder of this 21 days. What will you do in their life? And we tell you that we are committed to act as you prompt us to do so in whatever way that you would. We're ready, send us. Lord, we thank you for these things and it's in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Men. Hey, we're going to close here with a song, but let me uh, just remind you there are those next step cards in your seat back. And if you want to know more about how to have a relationship with God, or if you just need someone to pray with you about something going on in your life today, you can fill out that card and put it in the offering box or just head back to the yes table. There's always someone there willing to pray for you and help you however you need it. So let's stand together and we'll close in song.